stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, good afternoon, folks. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you on a busy Tuesday afternoon. Uh, certainly, we'll get back to the big news of the day. The Prime Minister unveiling this ambitious new climate change plan, getting a lot of reaction. We'll get to that. Also, some interesting new research from the Business Council of Alberta, Alberta on how Albertans see the future of this province. What kind of a future Albertans want to see? We'll get to that after 2.30. We'll have more time for your phone calls as well. Uh, interesting developments this week uh, with regard to the situation in Ukraine. There's some optimism that peace talks might yield some success. Interesting comments from Russia's defense minister today, suggesting that Russia may scale back military operations around Kiev, as though they're doing it out of the goodness of their heart, and not the fact that they suffered some serious military setbacks. We've heard some reports uh, of some remarkable Ukrainian success in taking back some of the smaller communities around Kiev. So as Ukraine makes some progress in, in striking back, the Russians seem more amenable to, to talking. Interesting how that goes. And there's kind of a parallel here, I suppose, that as uh, Russia's military has faltered, so too has its vaunted propaganda machine. Every step of the way, Russia, it seems, has failed to set or control a narrative, both in terms of the troop buildup, in terms of the invasion itself, and in terms of what's been happening on the ground. Is there a reason for that? Was the Russian propaganda machine maybe not what we thought it was? We've certainly seen evidence of its, uh, its prowess and success in the past. Or has something changed that is now manifesting itself? Some questions explored in an op-ed in the Globe and Mail today uh, by our next guest, uh, Stephanie Carvin. is an associate professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Also author of the book, Stand on Guard, Reassessing Threats to Canada's National Security. Professor Carvin, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me on again. Uh, do you see a connection between the lack of military success on Russia's part and the lack of, uh, shall we say, propaganda success on Russia's part? Yeah, I think, you know, we have to be careful explicitly tying these two things together, or at least sure. um, how we tie those two things together. But, yeah, I think those things kind of go hand in hand. I mean, you can have all the propaganda in the world, but... Um, if you're getting your butt kicked, I'm not really sure that, mm-hmm. um, that you know, it, it makes for a very compelling story. I mean, the kind of, I mean, the whole idea behind, you know, sometimes it's called hybrid warfare, sometimes it's called gray zone, sometimes it's called information operation. It just really depends what you're, what you're referring to and, and, and how you're referring to it. But the whole idea is that, um, you know, pr- like as a conflict starts, you kind of, distort the information environment and that you make it confusing and it's hard to tell fact from fiction. And, you know, when Russia went into Georgia and to it, it invaded the country of Georgia in, in 2008, the basically the, 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 they dominated the information environment. They, they kind of, you know, uh, X'd out the internet. They took control of the television airwaves, the radio waves. And, you know, so the Georgian government couldn't actually get its narrative out. Um, and so as they're kind of scrambling to respond to the, invasion um of two of its territories they weren't able really to to respond or 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 counter that so that's the kind of idea that you know we we all expected to see and similar with crimea right um and and you know parts of uh, eastern ukraine where you know when when russia's gone in there's been um these kind of information 
operations that kind of disguise what's going on and make it a lot easier for you to to actually annex territory and to create, you know, confusion among your enemies, which makes it harder for them to respond. So that's what we were expecting to see, I think, with Ukraine. And, you know, I think most of us expected that if Russia went in, that Ukraine might last, you know, something like 72 hours. But um, there doesn't even seem to have been an attempt at creating an information operation (laughs) in terms of going in. Like, there was just, there was no propaganda. The Internet's still up. Um, they haven't shut it down. Um, there's no, they weren't able to take over the airwaves. It's, it's really bizarre um, how, how badly Russia is doing it. This. So, I mean, I'm not a military expert. I can't tell you about tank warfare or columns or how they're using tanks and things like this. But um, sure. the one thing I, 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 I have looked at in the past is Russia's information operations and how they kind of complement these military, um, you know, uh, escapades, if you will, and uh, yeah, we're just we're just not seeing it, and that's kind of uh, raised a lot of questions. Like, why why is that? Well, and, and maybe credit where credit is due. I mean, certainly Ukraine's president has done a remarkable job of of communicating to the world so the the situation is is as they see it happening in their country and countering a lot of that Russian message and maybe even credit where credit is due to U.S. intelligence. I mean, right from the get-go, they seem to be a step ahead of the Russians. Uh, Obviously, they've got some good sources because, you know, they were well aware of all the Russian troop movements, everything going on. And I think it helped keep the Russians a little off guard in terms of, you know, why, why did the Americans know this or how did they know that? And I think it it probably hurt their efforts to, to try to build up some kind of narrative around this. Yeah, there's a bunch of different like explanations out there for why, you know, this hasn't worked or why, you know, uh, the West is kind of ahead of the game. And one of them is, you know, governments have learned the lessons, right? We know how Russia operates um, in, in these spaces now. And so because, you know, they now have kind of a, I want to call it a predictable pattern because it's always, like, it can always be a little bit chaotic, but, you know, you know they're going to probably engage in these activities, so you can uh, kind of preempt them. So, you know, a lot of the, um, you know, one of the things that the United States and the United Kingdom have done in particular is uh, pre-bunk, which, you know, instead of debunking, you pre-bunk it. Right. So um, debunking, of course, is when you, you, you look at something and you say, okay, this isn't true for this reason, this reason, this reason. In this case, you actually say, okay, this is what's happening before the disinformation can come out. So you're already kind of setting the stage before, you know, the, the Russian players can get on it, so, which is, you know, it's, we're going to be studying that for years in terms of, of how that works as a, a strategy. So I think that's one thing. It's really, it's, it's really, really interesting. Um, the next thing I, that I think is interesting is, you know, you mentioned it as well, like Zelensky. Like he's, you know, kind of playing the role of Churchill in a green T-shirt. And yeah. he's an actor, yeah. right? He understands communication. He understands how to generate empathy. He knows how to, you know, for better or for worse, play the role of the leader. And he's doing that. And he's doing that exceptionally well. But it also helps that Ukraine has a, from, for better, for worse, not a lot of great ways to describe it, but they have a better story to tell, right? They're the, the underdog. They're the David and the David and Goliath story. And they are, um, you know, I, I don't think we should over-exaggerate. Like, they're not, you know, I said they're kicking the Russians' butts. But, I mean, they, they are taking heavy losses as well. But the fact is they've, they've hidden that to a large extent. But, you know, the fact is, is they, they have this far more compelling story that, you know, I think lends itself to, to more sympathy, to more understanding, and they've worked that to a really great extent, particularly in Western countries. So 
Um, so, yeah, there's a bunch of, of different um, explanations. Russia just doesn't seem to they, – they seem to have, like, worked on a bunch of faulty assumptions. One is that, you know, we can do what we always did and it'll work. Uh, no, yeah. it didn't. Uh, they seem to have gone into Russia on faulty assumptions that the Ukrainians wanted to be Russians. Well, no, they don't. Um, and they seem to have think they could militarily dominate. And no, they can't. And no, you know, and even if they tried – um, it's going to be hard now to do the kind of information operations um, that would try and change that narrative around. So how do you think it changes the threat as we would see it? And we've talked before about foreign interference, and, and maybe China is still the bigger threat in that realm, but does this suggest that you know the Russian threat has been taken off the table, that they're just not good at this anymore, they're, they're going to be too focused on, on the, the mess that they've created with this invasion? <laughs> That's a really good question. I think it'll depend how it goes. I mean, the one thing about information operations is that they're cheap, right? They're, they're not expensive. Uh, you know, Twitter bots are not expensive. Um, taking, you know, putting hackers on, taking out Internet and stuff like that, that's, those things aren't expensive. Although I have to say, uh, Russia has been kind of tormenting Ukraine with all these cyber attacks for years. And as a result, they've built one of the most resilient internets <laughs> out there. They, they know how to actually mm-hmm. defend this stuff because they've been uh, prodded so much by the Russians. But, you know, these things are, are, are not that expensive. So I think there's a couple of things here. First of all, the Russians will adapt, right? Both militarily on the ground. We're seeing that as, as we're talking now. They're changing their strategies. You know, they couldn't get everything they wanted, but it doesn't mean they won't try different things right so they're going to adapt and that's going to be true in terms of their military campaign as well as their information operations so you know they're on the back foot but we can expect them to try and do other things that are out there like um you know maybe you know uh, there's been some research showing that okay the you know russia is not targeting the west but what it is trying to do is target non-western countries in africa um uh south africa and india in particular seem to be very receptive to some of the narratives that Russia's putting out, uh, China is uh, amplifying certain kinds of disinformation. So, you know, we may see uh, a change in tactics, which, uh, you know, so maybe it's not kind of the bold messaging, but maybe kind of going after other targets or, you know, trying to spread disinformation about um, bio labs, which we've seen, which has, you know, had some success in some of the uh, anti-vax communities that are out there, the ones particularly those that are driven by conspiracy theories. Um, and also, you know, it may just be an attempt to change the public opinion. You know, maybe Russia realizes, okay, we can't change the opinion of, of countries like Canada or other Western countries, but we can work on maybe countries that have less skin in the game, um, like in, in Africa and Southeast Asia and places like that. And that's where they'll concentrate their efforts so that when there's votes, at the United Nations about this issue that hopefully more states will eventually uh, vote their way. Very interesting. Well, your latest, as mentioned, is up at theglobeandmail.com. Stephanie Carvin, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Rob. Thanks again. Likewise. All the best. Uh, Stephanie Carvin, Associate Professor of the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University. Uh, Her latest book, it's called Stand on Guard, Reassessing Threats to Canada's National Security. And certainly a lot of that does deal with the uh, area of foreign interference. And you look at China and Russia as kind of the two biggest threats in that realm. But obviously, there's going to be a real reassessment of at least the Russian side of that coming out of this whole situation, whether they got worse at this, whether we've got better at responding, maybe it's a combination of the two, but it's definitely been an interesting factor so far. (music) 
All right, welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here in the studio afternoon. So what kind of future do you see for Alberta? What kind of future do you want Alberta to have? Where, where do you see this province going and what's going to keep you here? How optimistic are you that uh, you know we're going to have a, a real positive future in Alberta? So a lot of big questions maybe we're, we're spending a lot of time talking about right now. feels like we're almost at a bit of a tipping point in terms of what direction Alberta is going to go here. And there was a conversation to be had about all of that. Uh, an interesting contribution from the Business Council of Alberta. Now, for the past several months, they've been involved in speaking to not just business leaders, community leaders in Alberta, but thousands of average Albertans as well. Uh, to talk about some of these big picture questions. How are we feeling about Alberta right now? Are we optimistic about Alberta's future? What do we see that future possibly looking like? And how do we get there? So they've released some some new research uh, today uh, that paints an interesting picture of how Albertans feel about all of this. So you can read more at businesscouncilab.com. Joining us on the line here this afternoon is Scott Crockett, uh, VP of Communications and External Relations at the Business Council of Alberta. Scott, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Rob. Looking forward to chatting about this. Yeah, well, let's talk about, first of all, why you feel it's important to be having these conversations, why you think Albertans are having these conversations. What kind of a moment are we at right now as you see it? Well, I think we're at a moment right now where Albertans want to define what our next phase is going to look like, our next chapter. And uh, one of the things that we really heard when we started talking to Albertans is they, they really want to know that there is a good long-term plan for this province. They want to feel optimistic about it, but they know that we have to kind of do it on purpose. If we just uh, act like a, a cork bobbing on the sea of life and, uh, and let whatever happens to this province just happen, we know that we won't hit good results. And so that's why we went out and, and spoke to thousands of Albertans to say, okay, if we're going to make the future of this province on purpose, what's the role of business, what's the role of people, what's the role of government, and most importantly, what do you want it to look like? Yeah, and those, those are important questions. It's interesting because even though, you know, there's some challenges identified here, Albertans largely do seem to be optimistic, despite some of those challenges, and, and obviously we've had some tough years as of late. So where, where does that optimism come from, do you think? Well, you just touched on one thing that was almost one of the fall off my chair findings from this research was, you know, a lot is made these days of the divisions in our province and the, the things that pull us apart and the things that we feel differently about. And, and some of those are absolutely real. But we were blown away that we kept hearing the same things over and over, stated in very similar ways from Albertans in rural and urban communities in the north and the south, indigenous communities and, and other small towns and things like that. And um, and what they were looking for was really this kind of optimistic future for the province. As you said, uh, many Albertans, you know, almost two-thirds of them, say that they're quite optimistic for the next 10 years. And when we asked them, well, what do you want it to look like in 10 years? The really frequent themes were, you know, first, that they wanted it to be a place where everyone could succeed, a place for everyone. Uh, second is that they'd, uh, they were looking for prosperity and the opportunity, you know, good jobs and a good economy, the things that Alberta is famous for. And, uh, and the last was a, a place of innovation, you know, leading towards our emerging tech sector, but also solving some of the world's biggest problems. And it's interesting, this notion of prosperity, because, you know, it's not just about, like, GDP, like, prosperity means a lot of things, right? Uh, what are we talking yeah. about when we talk about uh, an Alberta that prospers? You know, I think that this, that's an example of one thing we've really got to wrap our heads around as we consider what we want the future of this province to look like. When Albertans were talking to us, they were saying they wanted prosperity, but you're absolutely right. When they defined what they meant by prosperity, it was only partly a good economy and a, and a good job. It was also what we've come to call social prosperity. You know, um, 
That can mean uh, quality health care and education, um, communities that work for people, you know, places to walk, safety, the, all those sorts of things. And um, Albertans consider those things as much a part of prosperity as having a great job. Now, in terms of where we're at right now, and this was an interesting finding uh, in, in this research that maybe there's a recognition that, that Alberta has a perception problem. As much as maybe we're feeling good about where Alberta's at or where it might be going, I think we recognize that Alberta's reputation outside of Alberta isn't where it needs to be. Absolutely. Um, this was one of the big challenges that Alberta said is, is sort of standing in our way. And that's that um, overwhelmingly Albertans are, are not satisfied with our reputation in other parts of Canada or, or maybe even in other parts of the world. And there's this feeling that our reputation, our brand, or what I may even call kind of our esprit de corps is damaged. And um, it's this real perception reality gap. You know, for anyone who's spent time both in Alberta or in Calgary or in, in other parts of Canada, you know that how we see ourselves here in Alberta is not the same as we're seen elsewhere. You know, the reality is a lot of Albertans tell us that they think other Canadians see us as kind of backwards thinking and uh, not super welcoming of new ideas and new people, maybe not terribly concerned about the environment or about climate action. And, and nothing could be further from the truth. Everybody who lives here knows that. This is actually an incredibly welcoming place where newcomers have some of the highest success rates in the country that's yeah. open to new ideas. And, and nobody invests more in, in climate and green technology than Alberta. And that's maybe one of the reasons why Albertans are so frustrated by this is because they just know that the way that we're seen is not real. And it's interesting, too. I mean, you know, certainly Alberta is seen as a business-friendly environment. There's a strong sense of entrepreneurship that exists among Albertans. When we talk about one industry in particular, the future of oil and gas, I mean, clearly there's a connection that Alberta has to that industry, a belief or a hope that that can be a big part of the picture moving forward. But there's also recognition maybe that it can't be just that, right? We can't keep putting all our eggs in, in a single basket. Indeed. You know, the, the discussion of the energy industry and oil and gas, it, it's related to that point we just talked about. You know, the, it, the sharpest focus around environment and climate change, it happens uh, in discussion of the energy industry. But also, when you think about the future of Alberta, you just can't have a discussion about the future of Alberta without having a discussion of the energy industry. And what we discovered here through talking to Albertans and through this research is that what Albertans are really looking for is an and approach, I would call it. You know, a, a strong majority of Albertans are very supportive of the important role that the oil and gas industry plays in our economy and will continue to play a growing role. Uh, at the same time, you know, nearly everyone, over 90% of Albertans, uh, said that diversifying the economy should be some sort of priority, either a strong priority or a mid-priority. So this means that there's a whole bunch of people who are both supportive of the oil and gas industry and still think that we need to diversify the economy. And I think this is one of the most important things that we can do. You know, uh, Rob, for, for folks like you who have a public voice, is you know, push back against the thought that uh, this has to be an either-or conversation. Yeah. Either we have to support the oil and gas industry, or we can expand to new economic sectors. What Albertans are saying is it has to be both. We need to do both those things. What's the takeaway for policymakers here? I mean, obviously, there's a message for, for business leaders, and I think Albertans obviously have a role in, in shaping our own destiny to, to some extent. But obviously, as you talked about earlier, the idea of, of long-term planning and, and the need for vision from policymakers, what's the takeaway for them? Well, an excellent question. Well, I'll say that um, 
part of uh, the work that we're doing here is this is the, the third of four pieces of work that we're putting out as part of this project. And this is the one that says, this is what Albertans want in the future. The last one is going to be some, some tangible policy recommendations, the pathway to get there. So the truth is, we're still figuring some of that out. But I don't think it's, it's too soon to talk about what some of those implications are. And I think um, some of the implications are very clearly, uh, first, that Albertans want um, to see less division in the province and uh, a good long-term plan for where we're headed, something that, something that many Albertans can rally behind, and I think we've found that that's very possible. They'd like to see our reputation improving and us getting credit for all the great things that we're doing in this province and, and continuing to do, so that involves telling our story. And, you know, I'm someone who, who works in communications for a living, so I understand that it, it takes a long time and a lot of proof points to change a reputation once it's been made. And then I think... Um, you know, the third thing is is the future of our core industries. You know, traditional industries, absolutely, like energy, uh, its role in the next decade, agriculture as well. I think Albertans want to see a future that, that is about taking those industries and showing a pathway for how, you know, eight years from now in 2030, they're going to be uh, an even greater version of themselves. And I think that involves policy that helps those industries expand to be more than just what we think of, you know, when we think about energy or agriculture, but to really take advantage of how they can be involved in technology and artificial intelligence, advanced science, those sorts of things. Much more as mentioned, businesscouncilab.com. Fascinating stuff, Scott. Thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Thank you very much, Rob. Talk to you soon. Much appreciated. Scott Crockett, uh, VP of Communications and External Relations at the Business Council of Alberta. So kind of a big picture look at how Albertans are feeling about the future of this province. Largely optimistic. Seen a couple big challenges. Uh, division within Alberta and Alberta's reputation outside of our province. So some of the concerns moving forward, you know, the need for a long-term plan, diversifying industry, more opportunities for young people addressing those divisions and having solid leadership. Afternoons on 770 CHQR. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Tuesday, our number 403-974-8255. So is standardized testing falling out of favor, falling out of fashion in our education system? Uh, it's certainly been a source of some controversy, uh, whether it's a fair way of assessing student achievement and how much emphasis should be put on standardized testing as opposed to evaluating students based on the work they're doing in classroom and how the teachers are teaching. You know, standardized tests are, are meant to, I guess, maybe level the playing field, but at least give an apples-to-apples comparison of students in the same grade in different parts of the province or different parts of Calgary, for example. Uh, but there, there is some opposition to standardized testing, and maybe that view is prevailing. It's a new report out from the Fraser Institute looking at the decline of standardized testing and making the case for why uh, the pendulum needs to swing in the other direction. Our next guest also had an op-ed this week in the Globe and Mail, uh, specifically with a message for the Alberta government and the opportunity here as we review curriculum uh, to revitalize standardized testing. You can read more at uh, FraserInstitute.org. Uh, but joining us on the line here this afternoon is the author of this new study, uh, Michael Zwagstra, a public high school teacher, senior fellow at the Fraser Institute, author of this report, The Decline of Standardized Testing in Canada. Michael, good to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much, Rob. It's great to be with you. 
So I, I guess measuring all of this is, is relatively straightforward enough. Um, so what, what do we see? I mean, not just obviously here in Alberta, but the other provinces you looked at. Well, what I did was I took a look at, uh, at how standardized testing has changed over the last 20 years across Canada. Now, obviously, every province has its own education department. Education is a provincial responsibility, not a federal responsibility. And so you're going to get, and there was, a lot of variation from province to province. Nevertheless, I found that there are several trends that do seem to be quite apparent, and specifically a trend to have standardized testing at fewer grade levels than what they were before, uh, to put less emphasis on standardized testing, particularly uh, have them worth either no marks or fewer marks than they were before, and also moving away from content subject-specific exams to generic literacy and numeracy assessments. So those are those are three of the trends that I identify that do seem to be happening uh, to a large degree across the country, and I, I find those trends concerning. So why have things been trending in that direction? Where, where's the opposition to standardized testing coming from? The opposition to standardized testing comes... Uh, from teacher unions, overwhelmingly, because teacher unions uh, in, in pretty much every province are strong opponents of standardized testing, and Alberta is certainly no exception to that. Uh, you also see opposition from education professors in faculties of education uh, that I would argue have an ideological opposition to standardized testing. And so those are two pretty big areas where you're going to get the opposition. Where you don't find the opposition is among regular parents, because anytime there's a public opinion survey on standardized testing, the general public likes the concept. But when you have very vocal groups such as teacher unions opposing it, that's, uh, that can have an Im- impact on governments. And it's very hard to resist that tide. There's a, there's a strong push within the education system to de-emphasize or even abolish standardized tests. Well, we've certainly seen, even just over the last couple of years with the pandemic, even further disruption to to the administration of standardized testing or even dropping the weighting even further. I don't know to what extent this is all meant to be temporary, but what's changed even just over the last couple of years as far as you can see? Well, the impact of, of COVID on standardized testing has been huge. And in many provinces, standardized testing was put on hold. Uh, and uh, so, for example, in provinces like Saskatchewan and Manitoba, uh, the standardized tests have been on hold for almost three years, almost three years now, uh, in, ter- in terms of before we get a next, a next standardized test happening. Um, you, you have other provinces where uh, they had been put on hold, but now are back, but there's less weight to put on them. And so you see that in B.C., in Alberta, for example, uh, the grade 12 diploma exams had used to be worth 50%, and then the previous government dropped it to 30%, and this year it's down to 10%, specifically because of COVID. Now, hopefully, I, I know that the Kennedy government is intending that for that to be temporary, but you can rest assured that the Alberta Teachers Association and other opponents of standardized testing are going to fight tooth and nail to stop that 10% from going back up uh, to a higher percentage. Because when you have a, an opposition to standardized testing, COVID has certainly provided a window of opportunity for those who are opposed to it to try to get rid of it. Because the argument is, is that, well, we're not doing it right now, so why bring it back? What is the right balance? And, and obviously, as you say, I mean, this does vary from province to province, even within a province like Alberta, it does vary from, from grade to grade. So we do have, or we have had standardized testing at, at various points for students. I guess the older the students are, typically the more weight tends to be given to these tests. So what is the right balance in terms of how frequent we use standardized testing, what kind of weight we give to standardized testing? 
Well, I, I think the right balance is to have it ha- happen multiple times. So, for example, at least at least like four times in K to twelve. So, grade three, six, nine, and twelve. You know, would be you know start at least one where they're younger, where you you can evaluate reading and basic math, mm-hmm. and uh, and I'm not talking about having them worth uh, a, a huge chunk of students' marks, at least not at the earlier grades. Uh, I, I don't think that is necessary, uh, and I, I want to be clear. I firmly believe in the importance of teacher-created assessments, and I'm a teacher myself. I realize te- teachers need to be able to take local circumstances into account uh, when they're grading and evaluating students. But the best approach is to have a balance where you have both. You have a standardized component where you have standardized testing to make sure that we know where students are at and are able to do some comparisons across the province and from school to school. And then you have the local teacher-created assessment where, again, teachers are assessing more specifically what they've done with students in the classroom. And doing both is, is important. You don't want only one or only the other because then you would have, uh, you would have incomplete picture of where students are at. Right. And I know that's been one of the criticisms from from those who oppose standardized testing is that, you know, I mean, you know, there are arguments that, you know, testing puts a lot of pressure on students, but also that it doesn't take into account local circumstances, the situation in certain neighborhoods or the situation in certain classrooms or the challenges that certain teachers face or, you know, the the makeup of of their classroom. All of these things don't get factored in when it comes to standardized testing. What do you say to that? Yeah, those are common arguments, and uh, the reality is is that standardization doesn't take away from teacher professionalism. It enhances it. So we wouldn't, you know, if, if an optometrist tried to argue, I don't need to use standardized eye charts or standardized equipment because my professional judgment is good enough, and besides, I work in a neighborhood where there's a lot of extra eye problems, and it wouldn't be fair to subject my patients to the same measurement tools as, uh, as people who live in other neighborhoods. We would push back on that pretty hard and go, well, no, use your professional judgment all you want, but there should be some form of standardized assessment. Uh, so standardization is actually a mark of professionalism. And uh, I would argue as well that when we talk about low-income neighborhoods and all that, I'm not talking about penalizing schools that have low results that are in low-income neighborhoods. I'm talking about being able to evaluate where students are at, and if they're at a lower level, being able to celebrate that when we're able to raise them from where they were at before. And standardized testing makes it possible to do that. And uh, it's, I'm not at all interested in the American approach where it's this high-stakes where we're paying teachers based on test results and all that. That's, that's a standard straw man argument. Uh, this is not the United States. This is Canada. We're in a different context here. I just want to make sure that we're not losing an important assessment tool uh, of, of determining how students are doing. And that's an important point because, sure, maybe it would be unfair to compare a school in, in a lower-income neighborhood to a school in a higher-income neighborhood, but you can compare that school to itself, right? Of Where course. were you at five years ago, and, and why why have the scores gone down from five years ago? Or conversely, this is a good news story. Scores are up from five years ago. That, that's where there's there's value, right? And I, and I would point out as well that every three years we have the big news stories about the PISA uh, results. That's the Program right. for International Student Assessment of 15-year-old students. It's done around the world, and it's not curriculum-based at all. It's very generalized, and yet we have we have a lot of focus on, okay, how's our province doing compared to the last time, and we look at the trends. And imagine, think of how much better it is to have provincially created standardized exams that are done more regularly and uh, where we can actually get 
a much more accurate picture of how students are doing and how it changes over time. Uh, we shouldn't have to rely on every three years we look at the PISA scores to get a very uh, a very broad overview. We could do far better than that when we have standardized assessments. Well, and how do we compare to other countries when it comes to standardized testing, especially countries that we compare ourselves to or countries that we're trying to keep up with when it comes to these international scores? Yeah, it, it varies a lot. I mean, you have, uh, uh, obviously, you have the United States where you have, like, every state has its own system. And so, you know, some states have, have far more have far more than others. Um, there's, I'm not sure where the United Kingdom is at with their, with how much standardized testing that they that they do have. Uh, one common counterpoint that people will make to my argument is they'll say, wait a second, what about Finland? Finland has amazing results on the PISA scores, and yet they have very little in the way of standardized testing. But you need to actually look at how PISA's doing, on, uh, how Finland is doing on the PISA scores, and they've actually declined dramatically in the last 10 to 15 years. And that's why we don't see a lot of news stories about the miracle of Finland anymore, because, and that happens to coincide with when they change the curriculum to a much more, um, shall we say, less subject specific, less content, less teacher, uh, less teacher directed. And that's coincided with lower results there, which again shows that why standardized testing is important because we can see that. But we would see it even better and more quickly if we had standardized tests done every year and you could track results a whole lot more quickly than an international assessment done once every three years. Very interesting. Well, the study is called The Decline of Standardized Testing in Canada. Much more at FraserInstitute.org. Michael, thanks so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Well, thanks very much. Always a pleasure, Rob. All the best. Uh, that is Michael Zagster. He's an educator and author, senior fellow with the Fraser Institute, and the author of this study looking at the decline of standardized testing in Canada. So it's like quantifying just what's changed which is, is an objective measurement, and obviously the question of whether it's a good or bad thing is much more subjective. He says it's a bad thing. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.